The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. All right, well, good morning. Uh, I thought I would begin uh, this two-part series with, with a little bit of, a, of an anecdote, so talk about my personal experience. Um, I, I did grow up in a Christian home myself, um, and I grew up going to a, uh, a church, of course, from the time I was very little, and I went to Christian school as well. And I, I kind of grew up uh, a little bit in a, in a, in a sort of bubble, um, and uh, I kind of had this assumption that uh, when it came to living the Christian life, people generally kind of all thought the same way, you know? <laughs> Um, that people tended to agree. I mean, after all, we're all reading the same Bible. Um, So I kind of assumed that when it came to living the Christian life, people were in general agreement. Until until that is, I I came to college here at at PCC. At that point, my my little bubble burst, um, and I, uh, I had this expanded social circle, and I had the privilege and unique experience to interact and rub shoulders with Christians from literally across the globe. Um, people that didn't grow up like me, um, people that thought differently from me. And uh, what that did for me is, uh, to be quite honest with you, it led to a little bit of confusion and in some cases frustration. What I started to realize was that not all believers think the same about all issues. And I'm looking at that on the one hand and the fact that we're all reading the same Bible and following the same Lord on the other hand, and I'm I'm getting confused and a little bit frustrated, realizing that uh, Christians, while we all uh, believe the same truths from the Word of God uh, regarding doctrine, uh, the nature of God and Jesus, uh, when it comes to living the Christian life, there, there ends up being a variety of takes on what is proper, what's improper, what's right for a Christian to do, what's wrong for a Christian to do. Um, In fact, I started to confront questions kind of like this one. Um, I realized that Christians had varying views on music. Uh, I realized that Christians had different dress standards, what they thought was appropriate for a Christian to wear and what they thought was not appropriate for a Christian to wear. I realized that uh, when it came to entertainment, other Christians that I was now rubbing shoulders with thought differently than I did about these issues. And then about some other things, you know, vaping when I was younger was not really a thing, but uh, these fads that occasionally come up in culture, um, I realized that sometimes something like this will come up and, and Christians are not in agreement on what's appropriate for a Christian to do. Is it wrong? Is it right? What can I do? What should I do? Um, of course, social drinking, uh, that is the occasional glass of wine with a meal or something like that. That's always been a debate, I guess, amongst Christians, at least recently. Um, and that was a debate when I, was a, when I was a student. And I started to rub shoulders with Christians that thought differently than I did on that subject. And again, it led to a little bit of confusion, a little bit of frustration. How can we read the same Bible and yet come to different conclusions on this? And also maybe the question of tattoos. I knew Christians that had no problem with it. I saw other Christians that seemed to have a problem with it. And I realized that that little bubble that I grew up in, where I kind of thought that all Christians felt generally the same about these actions and what it meant to live the Christian life, um, it wasn't as uh, monolithic. Didn't, people didn't think all the same like I thought they had. People had differences about this. Well, here's the fact of the matter. You probably had a similar experience, maybe earlier in life than I did. Um, but your whole life, you're going to run into these issues where Christians think differently than you on certain subjects. And it can lead to confusion, and it can lead to frustration. But here's the thing. 
If we do believe that God has given us in Scripture everything that we need um, to live a life of godliness, that is, he wants us to live a life that pleases him, and he's equipped us through Scripture to do that, then surely the Bible has answers or a way forward to think through these issues uh, where there is some differences among Christians on what we should do, what we can do, uh, when it comes to issues like the ones you see on the screen here. And so, uh, this is a borrowed title, um, but the title for our little two-part series here is this, What to Do when you, when you Don't Know What to Do. When you come up against one of these issues, and you've got some Christians that are falling down on this side of the fence, and they're really, really confident that that's what a Christian should or should not do, and then, and then, and then you find out that there are some believers that are on the other side of the fence, <laughs> you know, reading the same Bible, following the same Lord, praying to the same God and yet not in agreement on a particular issue. So what do you do? Well, I do believe in the complete sufficiency of the Bible to give us direction in life to live godly lives. And so we do find somewhat of a, of a helpful passage in three chapters. It's kind of all one, uh, one unit in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. So we're going to be taking a look over the next two days at 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, these chapters. You don't necessarily need to turn there in your, in your Bibles. I'll bring the relevant passages uh, up on the PowerPoint screen here. Uh, but if you'd like to turn there and follow along, you're welcome to. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, what we find here is essentially a guide to mature Christian thinking on issues where Christians disagree. On issues where Christians, some Christians fall down on one side of the fence and then other Christians are falling down on the other side of the fence. What is a way forward? How do I think through these issues? And by the way, if those first six questions that came up are not questions that you really struggle with um, or questions that you feel like you have a pretty confident answer on, I'm telling you, at some point in your life, something's going to come up and you're going to see some Christians think one way and other Christians will take a different stance and there you are in the middle trying to decide what is the path of godliness here? What is the right thing to do? Um, Well, here's the thing. We're going to take a look at this passage because in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, the Apostle Paul is dealing with one of those scenarios. He's dealing with a scenario where Christians are in disagreement on appropriate behavior regarding a particular issue. Now, for the Apostle Paul, obviously, the issue is not vaping, and it's not social drinking, and it's not some of the other examples that I brought up, some of the questions that the modern church faces, Um, but rather his question was something that is altogether, I think, foreign to most of us. And the question that he was addressing here was this idea of, can a Christian, uh, in good conscience before God and maintaining a right relationship with God and fellowship with God, can they eat meat that had been used in pagan ritualistic sacrifices in local temples, or would that be crossing a line for a believer? And again, I know that when you read this and and you first open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 8 and you're reading the first first verses and it's like, now concerning things uh, offered to, or meat offered to idols, let me talk to you about this. I know a lot of Christians are thinking, well, that's not an issue that I deal with, you know? That's not an issue in our culture. And in some sense, you are right, But what I'm trying to do is take a look at how the Apostle Paul and the believers in Corinth are thinking through an issue where there is uh, some division. Christians are going two different directions on this particular issue. So quick little background here on the city of Corinth. Um, You know the city of Corinth was located in ancient Greece and it was inundated in idolatry. I mean, you really, you walked down the streets of ancient Corinth, and you really couldn't go very far before you would come face to face with a temple that was celebrating some pagan deity. Being Greeks, uh, they did worship the goddess Aphrodite. Um, They worshiped Greek gods like Poseidon. And so if you grew up in Corinth, this was a part of everyday life. 
Uh, You walk down the streets of Corinth and there are these temples and there are statues and you're told from childhood that these statues represent gods that hold some sort of power over your life in different aspects of your life. And so you're told that those statues may just be statues, but they represent real gods and real goddesses. Now imagine you grew up that way. You've been told your whole life that Aphrodite is a real goddess and she does have some control over aspects of your life. And then the Apostle Paul comes along And he tells you that everything that you knew from childhood is completely wrong. That that's just a statue. And that temple is a temple in honor of a God that does not exist. And then he goes on to introduce you to the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And you come to a point where you place your faith in Jesus and uh, you have that new life and you're regenerated and you're trying to live the Christian life. But every time you walk down the street in Corinth, there you see those temples again. And in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, well, those, you know, it's, it's hard to disconnect the way you grew up uh, with this new reality that the Apostle Paul has introduced you to, a new way of thinking. Um, that there's one God and, and, and one Lord Jesus Christ and, and really what I need to do is try to line my life up with what he's taught me to do. And so this is kind of the background here. And uh, in the Corinthian church, you ended up with two, two groups of believers. Um, on the one hand, you had one group of believers that, that, that embraced Paul's teaching and said, you know what, you are absolutely right. There is only one true God, there's only one Jesus, and, and that God made everything. And he made the meat that, that, that's being offered in these temples. And I have no problem whatsoever going uh, to a, a get-together um, or going down to the local market and purchasing meat that had been used in these rituals. I don't mind that because I know two things. I know that there's one God and he made the meat. And I know that these idols, now I know the truth. I know that they are nothing. So there's nothing tainted about that meat. So that's one group of believers. But then there was another group of believers, and you can kind of see how they drew this conclusion because of the way they grew up. There was another group of believers that was on the other side of the fence on this issue. And when they, when they thought about uh, eating some of this meat that had been used in these rituals, some of this food that had been used in these pagan worship rituals to these gods and goddesses, there was something deep down inside of them that it wasn't, it wasn't sitting right with them. And so in their mind, they're thinking, surely this is not something that a Christian should do. And so you see the issue, right? Uh, We as the modern church do not deal with the issue of meat offered to idols, but we certainly do deal with issues where Christians are not in complete agreement about the proper way forward. And so what we end up seeing in this passage is a bit of a thought process. And and I tell you what, I am extremely excited to share this with you because I I do think that if you've never thought through this passage before, you have an opportunity here to kind of take a step forward in your uh, Christian maturity. Um, What I want to introduce you to is a mature thought process for what a Christian should be thinking when they come across an issue where they see believers that they know have a relationship with God coming down on different sides of the fence. And when we examine Paul's thought process and the thought process laid out in these three chapters, you end up seeing that there are basically four things that Christians, mature thinking Christians that want godliness in their life, need to consider. And so they are these. Um, Scripture, of course, this is the obvious one, right? When you're trying to figure out what to do as a believer, the obvious answer is, what does the Bible say? You know, this is the first question we ask. But the interesting thing in this passage is that Paul does not stop there. He moves on from Scripture and he asks a few other questions, or, or I should say it this way, a few other considerations come up inside the text here. The second one is conscience. When we talk about conscience, we're talking about that inward part of you that lets you know when you're doing something wrong. Or it lets you know when you think you're doing something wrong. 
It's that little feeling of like shame or guilt that, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I shouldn't watch that. Or maybe that's not something that a Christian should do. We all have it. Um, It's given to us by God. People often liken it to a moral compass. Well, that issue of conscience comes up here in this idea, again, of making decisions on these issues where Christians are falling down on different sides of the fence. And that's not all. Um, He he, he brings up a a third consideration. When you're thinking through these tough questions, and I'll tell you what, some of them are tough. Um, You think about scripture, you think about conscience, um, you also think about others. Uh, That is, other believers and then also lost people around you. When you're deciding what to do in life, um, it, it can't just be what scripture says, and it can't just be what my God-given conscience says. You also need to consider another principle from scripture, and that is, how is what I'm doing here, even if the Bible doesn't, doesn't have a command against it, how is what I'm doing here having an impact on people around me? Am I leading people closer to God? Um, or is my action here going to actually uh, lead them maybe a little farther away from the Lord? So this ends up being a consideration as well. And then finally, um, the passage concludes with probably the most famous verse from the three chapter spread, um, 1 Corinthians 10.31, and that is this consideration of the glory of God in my life. So um, I know that right now these, these four elements might not mean a whole lot to you. In order to make this practical, let's turn these into questions. The four questions that end up coming up here in this issue Can a Christian in ancient Corinth eat meat that was offered in pagan ritualistic sacrifice to these gods and goddesses? When that question came up, four considerations come into play. What does the Bible say? What about your conscience? Can you do it with a clear conscience before God? How will your eating the meat affect those around you? It might not affect them, but but could it potentially affect them negatively? You need to take that into consideration. And then finally, can you do it? with full confidence that eating the meat is going to maximize God's glory in your life. Um, So let's go ahead and take a look at these. Um, I want you to go ahead and, well, you don't have to turn your Bible. I'm going to bring the, but look at the screen with me here. Um, He starts off in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with that first consideration, Scripture. So he knows that there's division in the church. And the first place he kind of goes is, let's say on the right side of the pulpit here, this is the group of Christians uh, that believe that you can eat the meat offered to idols. And there's really no problem with it. Um, it's almost as if at the beginning of the discussion, Paul kind of steps over with this group and says, hey, you guys have a point. Um, you do, uh, according to scripture here, have, have freedom to eat this. God doesn't have a problem with it. So let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. Let me talk to you about that subject. We know, listen to that key phrase, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is none other God but one. I want to draw your attention specifically to those two phrases. There's two things that we know. We know that the idol is said by the people around you that it represents a God, but we know that those gods don't exist. And and, and to the contrary, we know that not only do those idols not represent a deity, those are false deities, they're they're, they're fake gods, Uh, we know that there is one true God. We know these things. Um, And then he goes on to say here in in, in continuing on verses four through six, for though there be that are called gods, that is your neighbor goes down and they say they're going to go worship God or worship the goddess, um, they, they call them gods, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him. Again, focusing our attention here on these two phrases, we know there's one God, We know there's one Lord Jesus. We know that the idols, even though they're called gods, do not represent gods. Here's my question for you. How did Paul know these things? 
How did the Corinthians that said, hey, this is really no problem, I know that those gods are fake, I know that there's nothing wrong with the meat, and I have no qualms whatsoever partaking in that meat because there's nothing tainted about it. I feel perfectly fine in my conscience before God to eat that because I know the one true God actually made that meat and I'm going to eat it. How did they know that? And really, it comes back to their knowledge of the word of God. Um, A lot of people will connect this passage back to the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, That famous passage uh, where uh, there's a call to the people here. Moses says, hear, O Israel. And he makes this strong theological statement here. The Lord our God is one Lord. I could take you to a dozen other passages that talk about the the pagan deities of the surrounding people. The people surrounding Israel were were not gods. Uh, they, they, they held no power. Um, they were not true deities. Uh, there are many passages, I'm thinking about Psalm 115, that talks about how there's these, these idols that have ears, but they don't hear, eyes, but they don't see, mouths, but they do not speak. There are a number of passages. I guess the point here is that when Paul's thinking through this issue, and you have Christians on this side of the fence, and you have Christians on this side of the fence, the first thing he does in his mind is he kind of checks with the word of God. What does scripture say on this issue? And he realizes that the Christians here that had no problem with the meat offered to idols were actually in the right on this. If this was our only question that we were asking ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about it? Paul would stand firmly with this group and say, go and eat the meat. You have liberty here. You've got freedom to do this. When God looks down and you see, sees you eat the meat, he's got no problem with what you're doing. But here's the interesting thing about this. That is not the only question that Paul's asking. He goes on, and in these chapters, there are other considerations. And the second, oh, oh, let me say one more thing here before we move on. I have found that when there are these issues that Christians debate about, um, I have found that most of the time the thought process stops right here, doesn't it? It's like, okay, well, there's Christians that say you can do this. There's other Christians that say you can't do this. Well, is there a Bible verse that says I can't? And if one cannot be produced, well, that ends up being kind of the end of the discussion. But what I'm trying to suggest to you here, I'm trying to show you from the word of God, is that that right there, that thought process is truncated. It's cut off. Um, It's not complete. Because while you start with the question of what the Bible teaches, that is not the final question that you end up asking. It's a good foundation. By the way, if the word of God had a command in there that said, don't eat meat offered to idols, Paul would have had his answer, right? And he would have been standing over here. He would have said, hey, we don't need to think about this any further. God forbids this. And certainly throughout the Corinthian letter, he talks about other things that God forbids, surely. Uh, Well, this is not the only consideration here. Once he realizes that, hey, Scripture does teach there's only one God and, and, and these other deities are not gods. So Christians that are eating, I can see where you're coming from. There's nothing in Scripture prohibiting you to have this liberty. However, there's another, there's another consideration, and that is this idea of conscience. So, so you kind of move on in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 to another consideration. Consider what he says next in verse number 7. How be it? Okay, so I agree with you guys over here that the Bible does not forbid it. How be it? There is not in every man that knowledge. You're real confident about this, but there are other people that walk down the street, other Christians that walk down the street, and they see that pagan temple, they think about the way they were raised, and they cannot in their mind get over the idea that this is something that is uh, wicked, and these pagan temples are full of wickedness, and so in their mind, that meat is tainted, and for, for conscience sake, they struggle with this. 
Um, you realize there's no prohibition in Scripture, but there are Christians over here that are still struggling with this. And by the way, part of the reason for this is because um, your conscience tends to grow a whole lot slower than your mind does. You know, you can be told a biblical truth, but if you were raised a particular way, um, you can hold on to that truth and still struggle with a particular issue because your conscience is catching up to your mind, and that appears to be what's happening to these believers here. Notice the repetition of that word, conscience. He goes on here um, to to talk about that while these Christians here uh, should have felt liberty to, to eat, he, he goes on and, and, and warns the Christians in this party over here that, hey, for their sake, so that you don't become a stumbling block to them, uh, you should go ahead and give up your liberty in this area for their sake, um, so that you do not inhibit them in their walk with God, you don't become an obstacle to them. Um, but before we get there, I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about these Christians that are over in this other, this other camp here. You see, here's the thing. If these Christians were not fully convinced that eating the meat was okay with God, then abstaining from that action was actually the best course of action they could have taken. Because in Scripture we find a principle that it is never okay as a believer to go against our God-given conscience. Let me show you a passage where this this principle uh, comes to light a little bit more clearly. A lot of people will, will associate 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 with Romans chapter 14. And in Romans chapter 14, Paul's dealing with a similar issue. There are Christians that said, hey, we should be celebrating these, uh, these holidays, and other Christians that said, I don't really think we need to. And then there's some Christians in Romans 14 that are saying we should eat this way, and there were some Christians saying, I don't really think we need to restrict our diet that way. So you're dealing with a similar situation in Romans 14, and toward the end of the chapter, here's what Paul ends up saying. He that doubteth is damned if he eat. So if you eat, and this is, if this is your situation in Romans 14, if you eat, but you are not fully convinced that God is okay with what you're doing, then at that point, it really doesn't matter if there's a prohibition in Scripture or not. You've already crossed a line. I, I tell you what, when I first learned about this principle in Scripture, it really did blow my mind. It blew my mind to realize that depending on your conscience and the state of your conscience, there could be some things um, that bother one person, don't bother another person. And we need to go beyond that idea of uh, whether or not there's just a, a command in Scripture that says you can't do this or you can't do that. And so uh, the principle here, let me finish reading the verse. He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because, because here's why. Here's why he's damned. He, he eateth not of faith. That is, he's not eating with full confidence that he's doing this um, with God's approval. Um, for, here's the principle, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Okay, so when I'm thinking through these issues, we've got Christians on this side, Christians on that side, and they're debating, and they, they don't agree, and I'm trying to think through, what can I do, or what should I do when it comes to that issue? Uh, first of all, I'm saying, oh, is there anything in Scripture that gives me guidance? And if Scripture does not seem to prohibit, well, then I kind of move on, and I'm asking myself the question inside, well, can I do this with a clear conscience? Um, can I do this with full confidence that God would be pleased with my action here. And if there's even a hint um, in my conscience that my God might not be pleased, then I've got my answer. I've got my answer. My answer is, don't do it. Even if I see other Christians doing it, for me, it is don't do it. Well, that's not the end of the thought process. You consider what Scripture says. You examine your own God-given conscience and don't violate it. Don't go against it. Don't damage your own conscience. And then a third consideration, and I do think especially among uh, Americans... I, mean, I know that we have other people here from different countries and whatnot, but um, growing up in the United States, I think this, this third one is probably one of the more difficult uh, elements of this thought process, and that is you have to consider others. Uh, here's why I think it's difficult for American Christians. Um, because we grow up, and we grow up learning about our rights and the Constitution, 
and we think as a citizen of the United States, there are certain things I can do. And if somebody else um, might be in some way put at a disadvantage by what I'm doing, as long as I have a right to do it, well, I've got a right to do it, and I'm going to assert my rights. I know my constitutional rights. But you cannot take that mentality and insert that into your Christian life. Um, the Christian life is not about asserting your rights and your liberties, and I'll step on whoever I can along the way because I have freedom to do this. There's no prohibition in Scripture about this. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And if somebody gets damaged along the way, well, you know, God didn't say I can't do it, and so I'm going to move ahead. Um, that thought process is foreign to Scripture, and it's foreign to mature Christianity. Um, so here's the, here's the passage. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 8. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Here's what he's saying. This issue is neutral. If you decide not to eat, okay. If you decide to eat, okay. This particular issue, whether you eat or not eat, this is not the end-all be-all of what determines whether or not God is pleased with you. It's a neutral issue. Um, However, he goes on. But take heed. And he's specifically talking to the Christians over here that said, hey, I've got freedom to do this because these, these gods and goddesses are fake and there's only one true God and that one true God made the meat and so I can eat the meat so I'm going to exercise my liberty here. He's talking to them. He says, take heed lest by any means this liberty, this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. That, that word stumbling block, the, the, the idea that you are going to put an obstacle in the way of one of the believers in this other group and cause damage to their walk with Christ by asserting your freedom. He goes on to explain. What if this happened? For if any man see thee which has knowledge, that is, you're confident about this idea that there's only one God and that those statues represent gods that are not gods. If any man see thee which has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. He's talked about the stumbling block. Here he uses the words perish, the word wound. And so here, uh, the basic idea is Um, Okay, so there's Christians over here, and they say, God doesn't have a problem with this, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Well, there could be a Christian over here that says, well, wait a minute, I kind of feel bad about doing that, but, but I see him do it, and I see her do it, maybe it's not so bad. And in their mind, they're not fully convinced that it's okay, but they end up seeing you and what you're doing and their influence then, they are emboldened to act against their conscience. And Paul says, you need to be careful that you exercising liberty does not end up causing this person here to make a move against their God-given conscience. If you do that, you're going to cause them damage. They're going to perish. They're going to be wounded. You're going to throw out a stumbling block. And then notice also what he says here. He talks about that person over here as a person for whom Christ died. And then he says, if you do something that causes them damage in their walk with Christ, then you are sinning against Christ. See, here here it was in Paul's mind. In Paul's mind, he could not fathom the idea that his taking freedom on a particular issue, if it could even potentially cause damage to his brother or sister in their walk with Christ, or lead someone astray spiritually, he couldn't even fathom the idea of going forward with it. It doesn't matter if I have license or liberty here. If I am going to wound someone for whom my Savior died, then I'll give up my freedom here. 
And so here, uh, it's kind of his focus. He, he, he loves what the Lord loves, and he lets that guide his decisions here in, in these questions of Christian liberty. He goes on, he says this, listen to how resolute he is. Wherefore, if meat, that is that meal at the, at the idol's temple, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. I need to make a, a quick comment here about the word offend. When we use the word offend in common vernacular English, modern, modern English, we often think offend means something like you're upsetting someone. Um, and that's not really what it means here. It doesn't mean that you as a Christian should give up your freedom on something if someone else doesn't like it, okay? That's not what scripture is teaching here. Um, surely you should take other people into consideration, but that's, that's not the main point here. The main point here is that uh, you should not take your freedom on a particular issue if you are going to cause spiritual damage to somebody else. So if that's, if that's what's in play here, that you might lead someone farther away from Christ or, or you might in some way veil your testimony to the lost by engaging in something that you have freedom to do, well then the play here is to give up your freedom. Um, the, pray, the play here is to um, really uh, to love those people and to love your God more than you are loving that particular liberty. Well, in chapter 9, he goes on and he, he talks about um, another group of others. So, okay, so again, you're thinking through these situations. You have a thought process. And, and Christians are coming down on either side of the fence. And so you go to Scripture first. And then you're examining your own conscience. And you're kind of asking yourself the question, um, well, uh, can I in good conscience do this before God? And, and then you're starting to examine, if you do go forward with that action, how will that impact other people around you? Paul dealt with how it could impact believers, the church in 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 9, he goes on and talks about how it might impact the, uh, the unsaved. Now, we do not have time to go through chapter 9, but let me show you the logic of this. In chapter 8, he's basically saying, stronger Christians, you have freedom to do this. God does not prohibit it. However, you might damage your weaker brother in Christ. And so I think you should give up your freedom on this. If there's a possibility you could lead them to uh, a lack of fellowship with the Lord, then you should give up your freedom on this. And then here's what he does in chapter 9. In chapter 9, he addresses a completely different issue. And in chapter 9, he basically says, you know what, that idea of giving up liberty for the sake of making a positive spiritual impact on people around me, that's something I do in my own life. And in 1 Corinthians 9, the issue is not meat offered to idols. The issue in chapter 9 is whether or not Paul's going to take a paycheck while he's in Corinth. We're not going to go through the whole chapter, but here's what he says. When I went to you, I could have asked you to support me. However, I felt like if I asked you all to support me, that that would actually be something that would be an obstacle for some people getting saved. They might question my motivations. If the church is supporting me, if I'm taking a paycheck, it could have been that someone could have accused me of having improper motivations. It might have veiled the gospel. So here's what I did. I took that freedom to be supported and I gave it up. Do you know why I gave it up? Not because scripture prohibited me from taking a paycheck. I could have, and he even proves it from the law. Uh, but he goes on to say, I gave it up because I saw that it might do damage to my witness. And Paul's taking the same thing into consideration. It's not just what scripture says. Of course, you start there. But if scripture's okay with it, there's no prohibition, you move on to ask the question about conscience. And from there, if your conscience does not condemn you for something, then you're going on to a third consideration. If I engage in this freedom or this activity, will I lead others closer to Christ or will I potentially lead them farther away? Well, um, let's go ahead and, and oh, this, is, this is good. This is not original to me. But basically, we could boil the principle of considering others down to this idea. 
um, that when you truly love God and you truly love the, the people that God loves, sometimes that love for God and others does limit your freedom. And, and by the way, I do not think that this is a drudgery. I don't think Paul says, oh man, you know, I had to give up these freedoms and it really stinks because these are things that I wish that I could have done and I wanted to do. I think in his mind he's saying, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't mind giving that up because it, I, I see how it could potentially move someone away from my Lord and that is the last thing I want to do. In fact, he said something so resolute, as long as the world stands, I will not eat meat if, if there's a possibility that I'm going to lead someone farther from Christ well, we talked about three considerations, and, and the last one really is probably from the most well-known passage, and that is this consideration of God. I would say that this one's maybe not a separate one. It kind of encapsulates all the other ones. And I'm going to take you just to one passage, and it's the passage that kind of concludes the whole thing. And this is a passage we quote a lot in a lot of scenarios and a lot of different situations. But when you think about it in the context of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, it makes a little bit more sense. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, Paul says, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Well, here's the thing. Uh, we started this chapel service by asking some of these questions and saying, hey, Christians tend to disagree on some areas of practice, what's proper, what's improper, so on and so forth. What I am doing my best to do is to show you a thought process. How does a Christian think through this? I brought up six questions. Three of them were chosen somewhat at random. The other three were chosen intentionally because these questions actually came from you. Um, Dr. Atkins did mention this, but uh, these are the questions that were, were raised by the student body. And here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow, we're going to continue this subject. We're going to take this thought process, and we're going to go ahead and apply it to these three questions you see on the screen. We'll do that tomorrow. You are dismissed. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.